If you want to improve patient care, you have to know where the problems are and what exactly you're trying to improve. This sounds painfully obvious, but probably can't be stressed enough. And it's increasingly true if the goal is to dramatically reduce adverse events that occur in the hospital. Too many organizations don't have an accurate way of keeping track of where, when, and how patients wind up being harmed and then are disappointed when even the best improvement efforts don't seem to be making enough of a dent in the harm rate overall. Well, the process of better detecting adverse events and thus better targeting efforts to eliminate them may be taking a giant leap forward thanks to some new research. And that's what we're going to be talking about on this edition of WIHI. Welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we offer this to you every other week and also for your convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan, and also IHI's Director of Communications. We have a really rich program in store for you and a talented panel assembled to share what they're learning about best methodologies for uncovering adverse events. So this is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan again, and we're heading into the important topic of sensitive measures for detecting the types and the extent of adverse events in hospitals and other health care facilities, um, with a special emphasis, though, today on hospitals. My introductions of our guest experts are going to be quite brief. M- more details are available on the WIHI webpages on IHI.org. And each of these individuals are going to very quickly make it clear how their roles and their work are relevant to our topic today. So joining us by phone, first of all, two people who work closely together, Ruth Ann Durrell and Amy Ashcraft. Ruth Ann is a team leader for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Inspector General. Amy Ashcraft is a senior analyst for that same division. Welcome, Ruth Ann and Amy. Also on the phone from Florida is Dr. Lee Adler. He's Vice President of Quality and Safety Innovation and Research at Florida Hospital. That's a major system serving the Orlando, Florida community. Dr. Adler was also the lead physician clinical reviewer for the OIG studies that you're going to be hearing more about. Welcome, Lee Adler. Hello. Hello. Good to have you. Now, Fran Griffin, also on the phone, she's joining us from New Jersey, where she's newly the Senior Manager of Clinical Programs for BD Medical, Medical Surgical Systems. Fran is also faculty for IHI, and she and another IHI faculty member, Dr. Roger Resar, they co-developed the Global Trigger Tool that figures heavily in OIG's recent research. And again, more on that as things unfold here. And finally, in the studio with me is Dr. Don Goldman. He's a senior vice president at IHI, a specialist in infectious diseases, and someone who's played a leading role in IHI's evolving understanding of best ways to measure and reduce adverse events. Welcome, Don. Welcome, participants. Here's what we're going to do. If you're a familiar uh, user and a participant in WIHI, you know the drill. We kind of engage in a guided discussion for the first half hour of the program in order uh, to have everyone with some shared material and information, uh, and then we open things up for your questions and comments, and we do that by chat. And Matt Morse here will explain again to you at about the half hour mark how to make the best use of chat. 
Uh, I also want to say that we have a few more slides today than we might normally. There's also a little bit more presentation because we do have some important ground to cover. Please be uh, mindful of the fact that you can download the slides uh, at the end of the WebEx today. You have that option. If you're only joining by phone today, you can shoot us an email at info at IHI.org uh, at the end of the program or at any time, and we'll email those slides to you. All right, so I'm going to begin at one beginning anyway, and that is the impetus for today's program, interest from the Office of Inspector General, Health and Human Services, in getting a better picture of the extent of adverse events affecting Medicare patients during hospital stays. Now, that interest was actually prompted by Congress back in 2006. Ruth Ann Durrell and Amy Ashcraft are here to pick up that story and explain to you where this all began and what has unfolded. Welcome again, Ruth Ann and Amy. Hi, thank you, Madge. This is Ruth Ann. I'm going to start us off with just a, a brief explanation of the work overall. Um, first, to explain our organization, for those who may not be familiar, Amy and I work for the Office of Inspector General, the OIG, within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And broadly, the mission of the OIG is to protect the integrity of HHS programs, such as Medicare. We identify problems within the programs and report them to the Secretary of HHS and to um, Congress. Uh, we, we started this work, as he said, in response to a mandate from Congress that the OIG determine an incidence rate for adverse events among Medicare patients, the cost of these events to Medicare, and then some uh, additional related issues. Uh, we quickly decided to focus on hospital care because it constitutes the largest portion of Medicare costs. And we now have a series of nine reports completed or in the works on various related topics, um, including a review of state adverse event reporting systems and an analysis of public disclosure of event information, uh, a variety of topics. But our primary task and our primary topic today was to determine an incidence rate, how often Medicare patients experienced adverse events during their hospital stays. Uh, we've now completed this work, as you said, and, and the OIG is going to issue a report in the next week or two that will include this national rate, an assessment of the extent to which each of the events was preventable, and then the estimated cost of the events to Medicare. Um, it, so to start, as, as all of you no doubt know, there's not necessarily agreement within the patient safety community about what even constitutes an adverse event or what we heard from some experts, even whether there's value in, in counting them. And further, even if you agree on an event definition, it can be pretty difficult to determine how that plays out in a specific case. The clinical definitions, you know, and, and especially how to parse out any harm from medical care from the natural progression of an illness or an injury, particularly for Medicare patients who are often um, older and might have a lot of complicating conditions. So we knew to get at this, we needed a medical record review. So we started reading and calling every source we could reach to help us figure out how to do that. And we held about 80 interviews. We spoke with researchers involved in some of the really famous adverse events work, such as the Harvard Medical Practice Study, and also many who had launched smaller efforts, even at individual hospitals, and focused on particular types of events. And it was during a conversation with Dr. Jim Battles of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that we first learned about the IHI Global Trigger Tool. 
And I remember the day seeing the, the GTT worksheet of triggers that was developed by uh, Fran and Dr. Resar represented a real breakthrough for us in terms of developing a practical method for going through the cases. And our collaboration with IHI also helped us to identify a panel of physicians to conduct the reviews who already had experience. And we ended up with a terrific panel with a range of specialties. In addition to Dr. Adler, who's an infectious disease specialist, uh, we also contracted a cardiologist, an orthopedic surgeon, an intensivist, and an internist from some of the most prestigious hospitals in the country. And our physician panel not only helped us develop our medical review protocol, but they also conducted a pilot study to test the methods before we incurred the great expense of doing the study nationwide. And given the time and expense of the medical reviews, our first task was to try to uncover some screening methods that would select cases, medical records for hospitalizations most likely to contain an adverse event so that we could reduce our number and the national study didn't have to use a full physician review for every single case. So um, Amy's going to take over now and outline our, our specific use of the GTT and the other screening methods that we used in the pilot study and how that informed us in designing the national study. Thanks. As Ruthanne mentioned, it was important for us to maintain a full physician review for our purposes as the IG, um, we thought that that was an important component, but we also needed to conserve time and resources. And as a result, we decided to use a two-stage review process. So the first stage we used was a, a, very, a, a series of screening methods so that we could sort out which cases appeared more likely to have an event. And then those that appeared more likely to have an event were fully reviewed by one of our physicians. For the screening methods, we identified quite a few possibilities, but at the time there wasn't much information about their effectiveness in finding events. So we took a little bit of the kitchen sink approach and included five different methods that seemed promising. And by combining these methods, we thought that we would find the critical mass of adverse events. So the, the screening methods that we utilized were hospital incident reports. Um, we asked hospitals to provide any type of incident report related to the patient stays and counted those as a flag that an adverse event might have occurred. We also used two methods for reviewing hospital-specific data. Um, first, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality's Patient Safety Indicators, which is a software program that uses hosp hospital billing information to detect 20 types of possible events. And then down fourth on the slide that you're looking at is the present on admission analysis. Um, and these are, were, are indicators that were added to Medicare claims in 2007 to identify conditions that developed during a hospital stay, which might be indicative of an adverse event. We also talked to patients about possible adverse events. We asked if anything unusual happened during their stay, as well as questions about particular aspects of care, such as medications, infections, surgery, and falls. And finally, we had nurses follow the IHI GTT methodology, or the Global Trigger Tool methodology, to quickly review the medical record and identify instances that they considered to be an adverse event. So on the table, you can see the incident reports and patient safety indicators were associated with only 7% of the adverse events we identified. Um, interviews and present on admission analysis were better, but it became very clear that there were many types of events that typically aren't found without reviewing the actual medical record. So the global trigger tool methodology was the most effective for our purposes and identified 78% of our events. Now combined, the nurses use of the global trigger tool methodology and the present on admission analysis identified 94% of our events. So when it was time to reassess our screening methods for the national study, they were the only two that we retained. 
Now, as Ruthann mentioned, the national study won't be released for a couple of weeks, but the results of the pilot study were released in 2008 and give us a pretty good glimpse into what incidence looks like. We found approximately 15% of Medicare beneficiaries experienced one or more adverse events during their hospital stay, and another 15% experienced less severe events, which we called temporary harm. Events on the National Quality Forum's list of serious reportable events and Medicare's list of hospital-acquired conditions were actually quite rare, with 3.7% of patients experiencing a hospital-acquired condition and less than 1% experiencing a serious reportable event. And this indicates that these lists only capture a very small proportion of adverse events. Now, the national study includes the same measures of incidence as the pilot study that I was just talking about, but the results are representative of all Medicare patients who were hospitalized in October of 2008. Um, in this study, as Ruthann also mentioned, we've included information on how the on how many of the events were determined to be preventable by our physicians and what the cost of those events were to the Medicare program. So hopefully you should be seeing those results shortly. Thank you. Okay. Uh, any, anything more? It's, this is very clear. Ruthann? Um, no, we'd uh, okay. be happy to continue on with Fran and, and happy to, okay, to sounds and good. answer questions. All right, so that's what we're laying the groundwork. And again, uh, we've got a few more slides than we sometimes do on WIHI. If you want to see them right now you can, and you're on the phone only, uh, you can shoot an email to info at IHI.org and the deck will be sent to you. Uh, but you really can, uh, I think, follow along uh, and, and uh, listen to the remarks most of all. And again, you can download some of those slides at the end of the show. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, Amy Ashcraft and Ruth Ann uh, Durrell from uh, OIG at HHS. That sort of gets us going there. Uh, Fran Griffin is next. Uh, Fran uh, has uh, been uh, sort of spending some part of her life in the world of the IHI Global Trigger Tool for quite some time, uh, starting with its developing phases and whatever. And we absolutely wanted Fran to uh, kind of help uh, sort of remind us about this uh, tool uh, sort of what it does and its relevance, actually, uh, to what we're discussing today. Fran? Sure. Thanks, Matt. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Great. Um, so just for a, a bit of background, the IHI Global Trigger Tool actually evolved out of more specific trigger tools that we developed at IHI going back 10 years, our first trigger tool being one to detect adverse drug events. And that methodology worked well for us, so we moved into other trigger tools for intensive care, for surgical patients, and others. And from that, we pulled together the most effective triggers from all of those tools into the global trigger tool as a methodology for conducting chart reviews to get a hospital-wide measure of adverse events or harm in order to assess the effectiveness of patient safety uh, initiatives in, in any given hospital. Uh, so really, I mean, the goal is um, to speed up the review process. You heard a little bit from Ruthann and Amy about their concerns as they set out on uh, their path to assess this within the Medicare beneficiary population. The best way to determine the number of adverse events a patient may have experienced during a hospital stay is to do a retrospective review of the patient's medical records. However, that can be very time-consuming, and if the patient had a lengthy or complicated stay, then the record tends to be that much larger, and reviewing the entire record can really be incredibly time-consuming, 
And if one has to use clinical people to do such reviews, um, trained nurses, pharmacists, doctors, others, um, you're talking about an expensive resource and taking those people away from other duties to do lengthy chart reviews. So we wanted to find a way to get the best information from retrospective chart review in a process that was uh, more efficient and allowed reviewers to get through the record more quickly rather than having to read every single page or as we move into electronic records, look at every single screen. And so building on the work of Dr. David Klassen um, that he had done um, published in the 90s and going back to, to some other work, all of which is referenced in the Global Trigger Tool white paper, we developed a trigger methodology. And so what we did as we talked through with clinical faculty and experts, we talked about what are the types of adverse events that hospitalized patients experience that are the most common or the most severe as far as the harm experienced by the patient. And then we backed up to say, well, if those types of things happen, what types of things might we see in that patient's record that would be a clue to identify the fact that this had happened? Because we know from voluntary reporting that most adverse events are not reported due to the complexity of reporting systems, fear of punitive action, and very often just not being recognized as an adverse event. Many things that we call adverse events in our trigger tool methodology are often written off as complications that just happen sometimes. And if we really want to improve patient safety, we need to shift about that. So that was sort of why we came about with the global trigger tool. Um, and that's what the methodology is. It's a retrospective chart review, but the record reviews tend to occur in about an average of 10 minutes once people get a uh, per record with an experienced reviewer. So it allows an organization to be able to do that methodology to get the data for assessing patient harm without having to do a cumbersome chart review process and combined with a sampling methodology of 20 randomly selected records per month and the investment of time is about three to four hours tops, and the amount of data that it yields, the organizations who've used it found it um, very valuable. So for more information, I would direct people to the IHI website. If you put in sugar tools in the search box, you'll find a, a wealth of resources, including the white paper that describes the methodology in its entirety, uh, as well as a lot of other resources if you're interested in learning more or using the tool in your own organization. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Fran Griffin. Uh, this is WIHI. You were just listening to Fran Griffin, IHI faculty member who's been working with the IHI Global Trigger Tool for quite some time. Uh, before that, you heard from Ruth Andurell and Amy Ashcraft at the Office of Inspector General Health and Human Services. So we're laying some groundwork. Uh, we're kind of making our way uh, through sort of these, uh, what studies have been done to date how the trigger tool figures in physician review. Uh, and now the next person who's going to kind of further illuminate a little bit more about that, uh, the sort of differences maybe between uh, strict use of the trigger tool and uh, the studies that unfolded and are unfolding out of OIG, that's Dr. Lee Adler. And joining us uh, from Orlando, Florida. Welcome again. Thank you. Uh as you've heard from Fran, Ruth Ann, and Amy, uh, the Global Trigger Tool is a targeted, expedited review uh, that is really a two-stage process. It's a, 
screen uh, review by a clinician followed by a physician that authenticates um, uh, that harm uh, that, that was found during the screen of the uh, nurses. Be, uh, due to uh, the differences of uh, between what the OIG's uh, goals were and what IHI's goals were, there were modifications of the mobile trigger tool that occurred, and I'd like to point some of those out to you. The IHI Global Trigger Tool uh, uses two uh, clinicians to review. Those, as Fran mentioned, could be pharmacists, respiratory therapists, uh, uh, and typically nurses. And um, in the OIG pilot, as well as the follow-up national incident study, there was a single uh, nurse, uh, very experienced, trained in Global Trigger Tool that uh, reviewed these records. Uh, secondly, the physician's role in the global trigger tool is to arbitrate differences between the two nurse reviewers and authenticate the harm. And during the OIG study, uh, the physician not only reviewed the flags for harm, but they also did a complete chart review. A third difference is that in the OIG of the IHI's methodology, omissions are not included. These are acts of commission. So for instance, if you uh, give insulin to someone and they have a low blood sugar, that's an act of uh, uh, commission. On the other hand, if you fail to give someone a hypertensive medication and they have a stroke or they, you fail to give them an anticoagulant and they have a deep vein thrombosis, those are uh, omissions that are not counted within the IHI Global Trigger Tool, however, were counted uh, during the OIG study. Additionally, uh, the fourth uh, difference is that IHI counts pre-admission events. So if you're a, a, at home and a physician has prescribed an anticoagulant and you arrive in the emergency department and are admitted with a bleed, that counts uh, within the, o, uh, the IHI adverse event rate. On the other hand, in OIG, that would not count. Uh, however, emergency room visits, uh, contiguous visits, such as the emergency room and ambulatory uh, events that occurred that followed with hospitalization did count. And finally, a fifth difference is that the nurse um, or clinician reviewer in the IHI Global Trigger Tool identifies the adverse events, and often if there's uh, two reviewers, uh, they come to agreement of those events. In the OIG, the nurse's role was just for screening, but not for true identification. That was the physician's uh, role. So those were the clear differences. Uh, another uh, key issue, which I believe uh, the, both the IHI uh, Global Trigger Tool as well as the OIG use the National uh, Care Coordinating Council medication event uh, reporting uh, uh, scale, uh, which is called uh, NCC MERP. A through D uh, typically are near misses and were not counted. Uh, they're not counted by the IHI and they're not counted by OIG. Clearly, it has to be harm. And the categorization of events included E, which are temporary harm requiring intervention, 
uh, such as an allergic reaction, but did not require prolonged hospital stay. It was just temporary. F, which is prolonged hospitalization, such as a surgical, uh, a prolonged hospitalization during, uh, due to a surgical site infection. G uh, is the next uh, uh, scale, which is permanent harm, and permanent harm could be following a GI uh, surgery, a perforation occurs that, that was accidental, but then requires a second surgery and a colon resection is done, so that's considered a permanent harm. H is life-sustaining interventions, such as a patient that gets it, morphine, has respiratory failure, has to be intubated, and if they weren't within a period of a, a short period of time, they would have died. That's H. And finally, I are adverse events that contributed to the death of the patient. These are the OIG adverse event is defined from F through I, plus they added a couple of other uh, issues, which include the National Quality Forum, uh, serious reportable events, which are a sm very small percentage, as well as the hospital acquired complications um, were also included in the adverse event incidents. However, these are very small percentage of the uh, total incidents uh, of uh, adverse events. Finally, uh, the physician protocol was used to describe uh, adverse events. Physicians had a, developed a consistency among themselves by using an algorithm. There was a frequently asked question physician guidance document formed. There were weekly consensus discussions and there was actually a pre, uh, a, a training program prior to uh, the actual study and a test uh, was given to the physicians to develop inter-rater reliability. So that's how consistency was developed. The physicians following the protocol had to uh, determine what was the timing of the event, what, what type or subtype was it? For instance, the types could have been surgical, procedural type of events, hospital-acquired infections, medication events, or patient care events. What was the harm level? As we just described from E through I, they had to decide whether it was everything, anything from a temporary event all the way through a contributory event to death. They had to decide whether this was a National Quality Forum uh, serious reportable event whether this was a hospital-acquired uh, uh, event, whether this was a cascading event. So for instance, if someone develops sepsis during the hospitalization, during sepsis, uh, during a, uh, having a central line in place, and they evolve into hypertension, shock, renal failure, and placed on a ventilator, that is a cascading event and was counted as one event. And that's, uh, IHI uh, looks at these cascading events similar to uh, the OIG. And finally, uh, a preventability rating had to be given to each of these patients. This probably had the most discussion uh, at the OIG uh, with the physicians. However, a scale from clearly preventable to uh, undetermined 
uh, was uh, developed, and the physicians had to assign a preventability uh, to it. So anyway, that's sort of the way the physicians uh, approached uh, the reviews and, uh, the, and, and the differences between the global trigger tool, uh, the way IHI uses it, and the way OIG uh, use the trigger tool. Lee, that's really terrific, and uh, thank you, Dr. Lee Adler uh, from Florida Hospital. And I, I think one way to this is Madge Kaplan, and you're tuned to WIHI. Uh, thanks everyone for hanging in there with a lot of information. One way you might sort of view today's WIHI, it's almost like sort of an early peek at some very uh, important fundamentals that are going to even make that much more sense when the national incidence rate report comes out uh, involving Medicare hospitalized patients. And as Ruth Ann and Amy said, that's within the next week or so. One thing I also wanted to offer everyone uh, who's tuned to WIHI today, we had hoped and hoped and hoped that that national incidence rate report would be out by the time we had our program scheduled. Um, that didn't quite work out, although we're close. And so I think uh, hopefully some of this information will sustain you uh, as you anticipate um, uh, that report being issued. You can find, I put up on the um, the chat here, oig.hhs.gov, uh, where you can find the pilot study information right now, and that's where the incidence rate report will be out. And I'm going to, and we will at WHI, email everyone who's on today's program and also send you that link, uh, which we plan to post uh, to our website as well as soon as it comes out. And Matt, yeah. this is Rickan, since sure. you're mentioning the report, I also wanted to say that it will include a, a great deal of methodological detail. We tried to be as transparent as possible about how we've done the work, hoping that there might be pieces of it that will help other researchers uh, in, in their efforts. So we have detailed appendices about the methods, the uh, decision-making process for determining preventability, uh, and we actually list out every single event that we found with a clinical definition so that, you know, to the extent that that's helpful, um, there'll be a lot of information should the reader want to go to that level. Wonderful. Thank you uh, for adding that, Ruthann. All right, I'm going to turn to Dr. Don Goldman. He's here with me in the studio, uh, and Don, there's a lot of frustration uh, sometimes uh, out there in the healthcare community and the public uh, at large. People think, you know, we know harm is there. Why don't we just do it and take care of it? And uh, at some level, um, you know, all this improvement work, sometimes it, it may sort of turn the dial down in some areas in some hospitals and systems, but at times there's frustration because it doesn't seem to turn the dial down on the rate overall. So I look to you, as I often do, for sort of that broader perspective and whether you think the work that's unfolding now uh, promises to kind of sharpen uh, our understanding of what's going on. Well, you know, it's very important work. Uh, first, I apologize for my voice. I have an adverse event of life <laughs> called a cold. cold. Uh, so I hope you can understand me okay. Uh, uh, this is very important work because it uh, uh, provides additional information validating the utility of methods like the IHI Global Trigger Tool uh, to uh, understand the uh, true rate of harm uh, going on in the nation's hospitals. And uh, as you can see, the uh, harm rate is not trivial. Uh, this is a major problem and one of uh, great national concern, certainly uh, highlighted a lot of uh, thinking in the health reform uh, legislation. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, there's obviously a lot of work yet to do. So uh, that's the, uh, I guess, uh, bad news. We, we have a lot to do. But the good news is that now we know approximately how much work we do face. Uh, that said, it, it is important to note uh, where progress has been made when uh, focused attention has been given to certain types of harm where the evidence base for preventing those harms is robust, we've seen some progress. So I'm sure most of the people on this call are aware of the substantial reductions in uh, certain hospital or healthcare acquired infections, such as central line-associated infections, ventilator pneumonias. Uh, there have been, uh, certainly in certain regions, states, uh, collaboratives, some very impressive reductions in those harms. Uh, and uh, we're also beginning to see inflection of the rate of MRSA or methicillin resistant staph aureus, uh, catheter-related bacteremia, and other types of harm. So all of the work that's been done by national organizations, not just IS, IHI, of course, but uh, the Joint Commission, ISMP, and National Patient Safety Foundation, HRQ, CMS, you could go on and on. A lot of people spend a lot of time working on this. This has not been for nothing. And certainly patients who would have suffered from some specific types of harm are uh, experiencing less risk than they would have. The uh, impact, however, of attention given to these specific types of harm doesn't necessarily translate to rapid movement in the overall rate of all types of harm, uh, some of which have not been adequately documented as being uh, important problems, other of which it's less clear exactly uh, how to approach them. Uh, for, for example, everybody knows that medication reconciliation is a really good idea, uh, but progress in uh, developing really efficient and effective MedRec programs has been relatively slow, and so uh, there's work to be done in many areas of harm reduction. So that's my overall take on the situation. It, it's, it's great to have a metric that the country can use to follow uh, the rate of harm, I would call out a challenge to the uh, agencies that are responsible for monitoring and addressing harm to fund additional studies of this type over time to see whether or not we can move the dot, move the needle uh, on harm. I think this is essential. A one-time snapshot is wonderful. How, how are we going to find out if we're making progress in the future? Uh, hospitals individually can also use this tool to gauge the success of their own programs. Uh, sometimes it will be um, argued that uh, small samples, and this is a sampling methodology, are not adequate to really figure out how an individual hospital, as opposed to the country, uh, is doing. Uh, I, I, I would say that what we found at IHI, I think others have found, is if you do sampling regularly over time, trends will emerge. There are statistical process control and other uh, processes to uh, analyze uh, time-ordered data that can tell a hospital whether it's standing still, getting worse, or getting better, and uh, the availability of this tool should provide some uh, very useful guidance for those hospitals. Now, as important as I think this tool is, uh, uh, you know, imagine those. I always want to be a little provocative. It, this is not to say it's the only thing a hospital needs to look at, or in fact, the country needs to look at. Uh, I'm an epidemiologist by training, and I know that if you really want to understand uh, harm or hospital-acquired uh, infections or whatever it might be, uh, knowing about the errors that potentially could lead to harm uh, is very important because they're much more frequent, actually, than the harm itself. And understanding the nature of those errors 
is the pathway to mitigating them or to preventing them altogether. So if hospitals do utilize the IHA Global Trigger Tool or similar method, I would say they also have to have a uh, methodology for learning about near misses uh, in their wards. Uh, and in addition, if they do feel they have a problem in a specific area, remember, a sampling methodology like the uh, IHI Global Trigger Tool will not really give you uh, accurate estimates of a specific type of harm in a single hospital. So take, for example, hypoglycemia due to, let's say, overzealous use of uh, glucose control in the perioperative period. Well, the uh, Global Trigger Tool would have to sample for a very long time to find a lot of that specific harm. If a hospital wants to learn uh, something about its problem or lack thereof of hypoglycemia uh, due to glucose control, they can use lab data uh, to see, well, how often is hypoglycemia occurring in our population or in our surgical patients? And, and that will allow the harvesting of much larger samples of data or, or even full data sets uh, to really analyze the uh, magnitude and trends in specific types of harm. So this is all a blend. Uh, I, I don't want anybody to go away with the idea that all they have to do is to do this trigger tool, 20 charts a month or whatever uh, Fran and Lee recommend, uh, that that's the end of their journey. Uh, melding together all of the pathways by which errors and harm can be detected is, in, is, is absolutely essential, whether the data come from voluntary reports, morbidity and mortality conferences, uh, uh, dedicated uh, efforts to understand certain kinds of harm. Uh, there are many pathways, and an aggressive, uh, informed leadership will seek to learn as much as they can from all of those sources of information. Thank you. Uh, you've just been listening to Dr. Don Goldman, uh, IHI Senior v Vice President, Infectious Disease Specialist, and somebody who's been tracking a lot of this work on harm reduction. I want to thank, uh, first of all, all our guest uh, speakers uh, today and all of our participants uh, as well. You've been very patient. Uh, we took a little bit more time uh, getting all the information out on the table, and I now want to open things up for your comments and questions. And Matt, do you want to just quickly remind people uh, how to use the chat function. Thanks, Madge. Sure, we're now going to go ahead and open things up to chat for a bit of Q&A. Uh, when chatting, please send your message to all participants and not all attendees. Uh, so if you do have a question, uh, please go ahead and type that in and we'll respond accordingly. Okay. Uh, Matt also did get some things sent to him uh, directly, so we will uh, make sure to copy and paste those in as well. I've seen a few hands raised, so I'm not sure if those folks want to go ahead and type some things. Linda, uh, first out of the gate here, were readmissions that occurred within a specific period, whoops, uh, uh, post-discharge, counted as an adverse event? Uh, any more details about the preventability scale descriptors? Those, yeah, that's that gets into a really uh, interesting area there, preventability. But let's start with: Were readmissions that occurred within a specific period post discharge counted as an adverse event? Ruth Ann and Amy. Sure. Um, we looked at events that were initiated during what we called our index stay. So the stay that was in the sample um, was our index stay and. We did not count events that occurred in readmissions, but we did look at readmissions because sometimes it wasn't, there may be an event that is not necessarily identifiable until sometime later. For example, a surgical infection that um, develops over time might not be identified until um, a few weeks after the actual surgery. So if the 
surgery occurred in our index day, we would have counted that. Okay, very, very good. Um, I'm going to hold on the preventability uh, question in just a minute but, uh, and get another one, another sort of just basic one in here, and then can we can come a, back. To, oh, go ahead, Don Goldman, plan. go ahead. You, yes. you know, um, a study like this has to use a standardized methodology and to decide up front exactly what it's going to measure. And, and of course, as the as is intended by the uh, 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 health reform legislation, uh, we're looking at the entire experience of a patient going beyond the walls of a hospital. And I would predict that over time, we begin to stretch and make more elastic the idea of what constitutes a, a great outcome and what constitutes an outcome that could have been better. And whether you call it a harm or a missed opportunity or an omission that led the patient to have something less than the outcome that they had a right to expect, uh, that those are important too. And, and over time, we'll, we shouldn't regard this as a fixed methodology that can evolve as our understanding of what a hospital and its handoffs uh, can do. Uh, it, it goes forward. Okay, thank you very much. There's a question also um, about asking, is the OIG study still ongoing? Uh, if so, have any modifications been made? Uh, Amy or Ruth Ann, you want to answer that one? Um, we have finished our data collection and, uh, and analysis and written the report, so we're in our final editing stages within the organization. Um, our operating divisions, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research have had the opportunity to see the report and respond to our findings, and so we're currently um, finishing up incorporating their response, and um, it'll be out shortly. Okay. As to changes, we did make quite a few changes between the um, the pilot study and the national incident study. Most of them were um, things that were more logistical from our end. For example, we were trying to do the pilot study very quickly and did our reviews on site. Um, then we switched to a national methodology. Obviously, it wasn't feasible for us to go on site, so we, we collected records. Um, through the mail and um, reviewed them off-site. We had a number of changes as well to the way we selected our sample. Um, we switched from sampling single discharges to looking at the case of a patient over a period of a month. So we looked at all of their hospitalizations over the month. Um, there were a few minor changes such as we, um, and, and this is a difference actually from the IHI protocol, I believe, we decided to go ahead and include all admissions and not put the limitation on that patients be um, in the hospital for 24 hours um, because we felt like we wanted to get a true measure of incidence and that that might bias the results a little bit. Um, so there were a number of different things that we did and we could talk about them in more detail, but I, I think I might spend too and, much time on that. Uh, Madge, this is Ruthanne. Yep. Just had something I saw that came up in the, the chat. Uh, the, the time frame was an entire hospitalization and so it was from uh, admission to discharge. Someone had asked, was it seven days, 30 days? It was the entire hospital stay. Okay, okay, that's very... And actually all of the stays for our discharges during the month. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, some interesting questions. Um, uh, to be honest with you, some of the questions I can see some programming or maybe some additional calls coming about sort of trying to sort of line up more about methodologies and sort of how to combine and contrast them even further. Uh, Fran, I hope I can maybe just put you on the spot a little bit. Somebody's asking here about 
uh, benchmark data. I'll see if I can come back up to that. Um, and also, where can we get benchmark data for the Global Trigger Tool? It seems that the data from the OIG study will not be comparable to our hospital GTT study. So far, we've only been able to compare ourselves to our past. Is that a question you might be able to handle? Sure. Well, there's, there's a couple things within that, Madge. I mean, um, we really did develop the tool as something for an organization to compare itself over time. So that's really how it's intended to be used. In theory, the goal we should all, you know, in an ultimate sort of way be, be striving for would be that patients don't experience harm in the hospital. I mean, certainly we can't get all errors out of the system, not when you've got human beings uh, involved in the process, uh, but we certainly would like to get as close as possible to zero harm. So, you know, in theory, that's what we should all be aiming for. It gets a little complex to try and compare data too rigorously between hospitals using the Global Trigger Tool because as people will discover if they're using it, uh, one of the um, aspects of the Global Trigger Tool is this issue of interpretation. Um, you know, Lee described a little bit of how they went through the process of getting to consensus in the OIG study. Uh, there is some subjectivity in looking at these things, and so if you do run into some gray areas, particularly with the temporary harm events, what we call Category E on that scale, um, and so you could get yourself into a little bit of a mess trying to compare yourself to another hospital who may end up having some slightly different interpretations. So the category F and higher events, those tend to be not as gray, um, and so certainly you could look to see you know, how what you're doing is compared to some other organizations. Are you seeing similar amounts of events? We've done a number of studies just to try and get data from different hospitals and use trigger tools in a number of IHI collaboratives. And Pretty much we find everybody landing in about the same ballpark of 30 to 40% of charts having adverse events when you include the temporary category E1. So that, that would be one thing. And then the main thing is I would say look at organizations not to do a comparison of is our data better than yours because of some of the subjectivity. But if there's an organization out there reporting that they've reduced the adverse event, then find out, benchmark the practice. Mm -hmm. Find out what they did to achieve that. So we recommend usually benchmarking the, the practices where reductions occur more so than the data strictly by itself. Okay. Thank you very much, Fran Griffin. Don Goldman, yeah? Yeah, but I, I know where that uh, thinking ends up. And if we have a what we think is a reasonably robust measure, uh, why shouldn't it be used for accountability the way we have other measures on hospital compare or mm -hmm. uh, similar uh, websites? So uh, I, I think what Fran said about the <clears throat> issues related to true benchmarking and comparing hospital to hospital are not ready for that purpose. It wasn't developed that way. It hasn't been tested that way. Uh, for absolute sure, you'd have to case mix adjust. Uh, very carefully in order to use it for benchmarking purposes, uh, which uh, is not what we're doing when we're using it for improvement. Uh, there are certain subjective aspects, as Fran was describing. So, uh, But I, I understand that that's a inevitable dialogue that will occur, especially after an HHS study. Uh, and uh, uh, just to be clear in our mind about what constitutes measurement for improvement and measurement for accountability or comparison or payment. 
very important to keep those separate. I, I'll, I'll just combine this with an answer to another question I saw up there, sure. which is our uh, the hospital says our results haven't improved. We've been monitoring, doing what you told us. We the overall rate has not changed. And the question is tied into that: is to, is it something to do with preventability? Yeah, it could be. Uh, right. That's one argument. The yeah. uh, the other is uh, that uh, uh, it's just too hard to move it. We can't do it. I think there was that tone in that question as well. Some people saying nobody can ever move these rates. Well, I, you know, I, I, five or ten years ago, if you'd asked me as a specialist in healthcare associate infection, spent my whole life at it, what I thought the chances were of half uh, the ICUs or more in Michigan reaching zero. Uh, rates of central catheter infections, I would have said that's impossible. The patients are too sick. We don't know how to do it. And now it's relatively routine for an ICU to go for month after month without an infection. So uh, it, it's, it's a tough global measure to move. The global measures always are. You have to work in multiple streams. You have to develop new evidence. Uh, uh, what I would certainly do is uh, look at your data that you've accumulated over, let's say, two or three years now in that particular hospital's case and see if there are any kinds of repetitive harms that are beginning to emerge that you want to target for a specific effort and see if you can chip away at that fraction. So I wouldn't despair. I'm uh, endlessly optimistic about the ability of, uh, to prevent these harms, even if we don't know how just yet. Okay. Thank you, Don Goldman. Uh, questions are great, and uh, thank you all for them. Uh, I threw up here the preventability decision algorithm, and I'm going to turn back to you, Lee Adler. We don't begin to have enough time on this program. What we're trying to do on WIHI sometimes is just give you sort of a taste of some things going on, and then we have a wonderful resource document where you can find more information. And we can come back to this topic, believe me. Uh, it's, it's, it's important. Lee, can you talk a little bit about the preventability in the studies uh, thus far and maybe some of the discussion uh, that's ensued and if you can sort of do that in a sort of brief fashion that would be great uh, it's difficult for me to be brief but anyway <laughs> the, uh, uh, first place uh, when we did the pilot study uh, the one of the uh, criticisms were uh, by uh, folks why didn't you do uh, determine if this was preventable or not? Because all the uh, the, the pilot did not include the uh, decision about preventability, and and as I said, the criticism was why didn't you include preventability? Because same as those forty events per thousand patient days, how much is preventable? How much is not? How do I know I can impact this? So uh, because of 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 the rationale. For uh, by uh, the OIG that we needed to include preventability uh, to address that specific question and also uh, they are involved with policy, national policy decision. Preventability was included uh, during the second time. We also knew that inter-rater reliability is somewhat marginal in preventability. However, if uh, there is a study uh, that I would recommend you take a look at, I believe it was in 2008 by, uh, and, and I'll give this uh, to you, uh, Matt, so you can post it. Okay. By DeFreeze, and uh, this study was in, in one of the quality journals, and it basically took a look at all studies uh, regarding adverse events since about 1966, and it was over 250-some-odd studies, it narrowed it down to about 12 studies. Uh, four of the 12 studies were part of the other eight studies. So it essentially was eight studies meeting the criteria of these uh, researchers. 
And uh, their preventability uh, percentage was around uh, 43, 44% during that study. And uh, they uh, found that surgical, uh, operational, and medication, uh, surgical procedural, as well as medication, uh, were the areas of greatest concern uh, during that study. So if uh, there are there are significant studies out there. The problem with the studies, like any retrospective study, is that there's uh, differences of opinion and rate integrated reliability issues. Right. Now, when we made the decision of going to preventability, we decided to use a consensus format. So uh, physicians had to make a determination of whether they thought something was clearly preventable, likely preventable, uh, not uh, likely not preventable, uh, not preventable and undetermined. Uh, undetermined, there was a percentage that we just couldn't tell whether the, uh, the event could have been anticipated uh, or not. The clearly preventable ones were uh, the most difficult uh, to determine, and so that required a consensus of all the physicians uh, on, on the group. And these were some obvious clearly preventable events. So we had a gradation of these types of events uh, that occurred. And uh, we were able to go through that algorithm uh, to identify the error. Uh, We were able to know if uh, the event was anticipated, whether these events were rare events. We tried to build a context around those events before we made the decision around preventability. And uh, we had uh, pretty good consensus and we felt fairly good about our decisions around these events. We actually eliminated uh, many types of events that uh, I believe in the IHI world of uh, because they don't decide between preventability and not preventability that we decided to uh, exclude from our events because we felt that patients were so complexly ill that uh, we would not include them. So, for instance, if you had take somebody with a pressure ulcer that's a, uh, that goes from a grade 1 to a grade 2 or a grade 3 pressure ulcer in the hospital, if we found that this was a complexly ill patient that uh, was very frail, unable to move, uh, where everything was done according to the documentation of the charts that could have, uh, based on the evidence that's currently available, to prevent that uh, from... Uh, uh, continually along the track from a one to two to three, we would not include that as a harm event. It had to clearly show that uh, evidence-based practice was in, uh, being followed, that there were errors uh, uh, being made, uh, the standard of care was not followed, etc. before we would call it. Okay. So, uh, yes, it is uh, subjective. Uh, yes, uh, it, but on the other hand, it did require a consensus of of the physicians. All right. Thank you, Lee Adler. You know, this is, uh, WIHI is a, I hope, a wonderful uh, offering for all of you and a creative experiment around different kinds of topics. And we've waded into a pretty complex one today. I do promise we'll come back to it. We've really uh, gone just about to the top of the hour. I just want to, the last word I'd like, first I want to thank Lee Adler. I want to thank Fran Griffin, Don Goldman here. I'd like to give Ruth Ann Durrell and Amy kind of the 
the last word in this respect. I know we're anticipating a report right now, but either one of you, would you like to just kind of remind everybody, you know, sort of what what's happening and just in terms of the uh, alignment uh, with the health care reform, the Affordability <laughs> Act right now, uh, because the, these things are going to be uh, areas that people have to pay pretty close attention to. Right. Uh, this is Ruthann. It's such a moving target right now because with implementation of the Affordable Care Act, and there are so many provisions there about quality of care and specifically about patient safety, uh, the Secretary is responsible for establishing a national strategy due this January 1st, 2011, to uh, regarding how we are going to address patient safety and other quality of care issues. It feels like it's just all happening uh, very quickly, and so we're not exactly sure how our report will come into play with all of that, but there are definitely some parallels. Uh, the Affordable Care Act also expands the Medicare hospital-acquired conditions policy to um, possibly increase the number of conditions, uh, expands it to state Medicaid programs, and also to use for hospital performance measures. And so I think there, there are going to be greater impact and greater measurement of performance in general and also on these patient safety issues. So um, it, it remains to be seen, but our report will be out in the next couple of weeks right as this strategy is being developed, and uh, we're, we're hoping to have some, some play in that process and helping to determine that policy. We're also thinking about future work, and let me just say that um, once the report is released in a couple of weeks, we would just so eagerly anticipate uh, any feedback from anyone on the call uh, criticisms, uh, uh, nuances, questions. You know, we're we're very eager to get uh, information about how you, at in, in the field and in your various pursuits, perceived our work, vulnerabilities we might have, because it's likely that we'll do more work in this area. And we learned a great deal from the comments and criticisms of our pilot study, and would welcome your thoughts. That's wonderful. And uh, Ruthann, uh, we'll make sure that uh, we can also play a role in helping people know how to get back. Get in touch with all of you and to offer uh, those comments and criticisms. I want to thank everyone for your patience uh, with kind of a hefty show today. Uh, thank you, Ruth Andorill, Amy Ashcraft, Rand Griffin, Lee Adler, and Don Goldman. Uh, you've been a wonderful, uh, patient uh, a group of participants. This is a moving target, as was said, uh, an unfolding situation, and I do hope that we can come back to it on WIHI as more information unfolds. Next up, on WIHI on November 4th from 2 to 3 p.m. The leaders needed for the changes healthcare needs. Uh, you can find all that information on our website. As you get log off the program today, uh, it's going to ask you if you want the slides. Say yes if you do. If you want the chat, say yes if you do. And it may. It will also ask you if you'd be willing to fill out a brief survey. And I would really appreciate that. Uh, if you've uh, just been tuned in by phone, if you email info at ihi.org you can get a copy of the slides as well. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. And the music that opens and closes the program, original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Thanks for joining.